This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Uh, Good morning. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel 9. This is where we'll be focusing our attention this morning. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you one for you to keep. So just keep your hand in the air and they'll bring that to you. I now have the privilege of reading God's Word to us. And and as I read God's Word, may God open the eyes of our hearts to behold the wondrous things found in His Word. 2 Samuel 9, verses 1 to 13. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said to Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage to him and said, What? is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba and had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Amen. Isn't this a fascinating story? My, my question for us this morning about this story is, why is it here? How does this story fit with where we are in 2 Samuel? 
Why does the author of this book see the need to insert this account in this place? I mean, let's consider, let's remember where we were. As we heard last week from 2 Samuel 7, David is on the throne. God has just made this amazing covenant with David, promising to build David a house. Not a physical house, but a dynasty. One from David's line is going to sit on the throne forever. And then you have 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel 10. 10. These are all focused on David establishing his kingdom. He is victorious. In battle after battle, David is winning. The kingdom is being built. David's name is being made great. 2 Samuel 8.15, I think, captures what's going on well. It says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So David is winning. God's favor is clearly upon him. Yet, couched in between these two chapters is the seemingly unrelated story about the grandson of the former king who is crippled and has a really hard name to pronounce. <laughs> Why, what is this doing here? What does this have to do with the kingdom advancing? What does this have to do with David? Why do we need to know about Mephibosheth? Because, my friends, we are Mephibosheth. Couch in between two chapters of God's kingdom being established, what we, what we get is a window into the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom like? And who is the kingdom for? What I love about the kingdom of God is that it just doesn't make sense at times. It is counter-cultural. It is counter-intuitive. It just doesn't make sense. But mostly, the reason it's there, and the reason that he, he tells us this, is because most of us, if not all of us in this room, have a lot in common with Mephibosheth. We need to know the story of Mephibosheth, because we have so many ways which we can relate to him. God has put this here because in these words, what we find is the most unlikely invitation. But in this invitation, what we get is a window into the heart, not only of David. What we get is a window into the heart of God. And when you look into God's heart, what do you see? When you see God's heart, what you see is kindness. It's the type of kindness that we have trouble putting into words. It's the type of kindness that just doesn't make sense. It's what the Bible calls grace. Here's why I believe the Lord put this text here for us. Here's, here's what I believe He wants to teach us this morning. Rest assured in God's promise to lavish you with His grace. Rest assured in God's promise to lavish you with His grace. I believe that's why this text is here. I believe that God wants to lavish us with His grace. I believe that, that God wants to remind us of His promise so that we can, be, so we can rest assured in that promise. So three points to help us see how we, like Mephibosheth, can rest assured in God's 
lavish grace. Point number one, like Mephibosheth, we are shown unexpected kindness. Like Mephibosheth, we are shown unexpected kindness. We are first introduced to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 4. He was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul, the king. Mephibosheth grew up under the rule and reign of Saul. He was part of that family. He was grown up under the protection of his father, the prince. Till one day, when he was five years of age, the kingdom began to unravel. Both his father and his grandfather die in battle. Mephibosheth is five years old. He has a nanny that is caring for him. He has a nanny who is protecting him while his father is away. And news of this battle, news of the death of the king and the prince has reached her ears and she is frightened. She is frightened because the king has died. And what that means is that they're coming after Mephibosheth. And so what does this nanny do? She runs. She runs out of fear. And what must have happened is that as she fled, she either must have tripped and dropped Mephibosheth or something to where he fell and he became a cripple. He lost function of both of his legs, both of his feet. More than likely, his legs were broken, but because of the lack of modern medicine, they were not able to help him. And so now you have Mephibosheth in one day who has lost the protection of his father, the protection of the kingdom. He's lost the ability to walk. He's alone. He's scared. And he's in hiding. We're reintroduced to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. I want to highlight a couple of things. There's many years that have gone by. 15, 20 years have gone by. And what we see is that what initiated, what brought, a, what brought about Mephibosheth's name is David's search for one, for someone that he could show kindness to from the line of Jonathan. Two, Mephibosheth was living in a city called Lodabar at the house of Maker. Lodabar literally means nothing town. It's what it means, nothing town. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's as they say now, it's off the grid. He's hiding. That's, that's what we need to glean from that. Mephibosheth has not ceased to hide. He is still worried about his life. Why? Because Mephibosheth during that time would have been considered an enemy of the state. You see, as one who was the son of the former king, one who was son of the former prince, he was part of that family line. He was part of that who could potentially want to take over the new king's kingdom. One commentator put it like this, When a new regime or dynasty came into power, the name of the game was to purge. The new king always needed to solidify his position. And so he wiped out the old regime. It was political policy that you didn't live if you were associated with the old regime. This is the reality, this is the daily reality which Mephibosheth is living with. One day he could be found out. One day there could be someone who comes to Lodebar and he could be found out. 
could be found out that the son of Saul, the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, lived there. And more than likely, what would happen is that he would be killed. So here is Mephibosheth's resume. He's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his position. He's lost his potential future. He's crippled. He's an enemy of the state. He's hiding. He's running for his life. He's in relative peace. But then one day, one day, there are certain servants who have come from David to Lodabar searching for him. The nightmare has come true. He has been found. They come knocking. They come searching. They know exactly where he is. He has been found out. Just imagine with me, just consider what could be going through Mephibosheth's head right now. The officers come, they knock on the door, they pick him up because he can't walk. They pick him up, they put him in this transportation and they begin to take him back to Israel. They begin to take him back to the kingdom. Just imagine the thoughts, just imagine the fear. Just imagine what all Mephibosheth was thinking. We get a window into this. In verse 6, Mephibosheth, he arrives, and what does he do? He falls on his face. He, fall, he just falls on his face. Not because, not because he had a disability. He, he wanted to pay respect to the king. What he's saying is that he's aware that he is at the mercy of this king. He's saying that I'm here and I realize what I deserve. What are the first words Mephibosheth hears from King David? Do not fear. Do not fear. That whole ride, Mephibosheth, he's anxious. He's struggling. He has no idea what's about to happen. He falls on the ground before this king, waiting to hear his sentence. And what does he hear? Do not fear. I love the, I love the reality that the Bible is filled with these words. Do not I love that there are promise after promise for us where God in His grace and His mercy comes to us and says, Oh, oh son, oh child, oh enemy, do not fear. Does this story sound familiar? Mephibosheth, he was aware that in his life, his greatest threat, his greatest problem was not his physical disability. It was not his lameness. It was his lineage. And yet, despite his lineage, despite what he deserved, despite what the world had to say about what should be done to him, he is met with these words, do not fear. 
Isn't that staggering? Isn't that glorious? This is what the Bible calls grace. This is what the Bible calls unmerited favor. The enemy of the state. He knows what he deserves. Mephibosheth doesn't have a lot to say because he doesn't need to say anything. But the first words that he is met with is do not. Fear. Does this story sound familiar? Does this story, does this account sound similar to our story? Does this story, does this account sound similar to what we have received, to the experience in which we have benefited, the experience of us seeing God on his throne and, and seeing what we deserve and the words that we hear is do not fear. We are like Mephibosheth. We come from a line, from a family line, that is an enemy, not of the state, but an enemy of God. We are from Adam's line. We sang about it this morning. Come behold the wondrous mystery. There was a true and better Adam that came for us. We needed a true and better Adam to come and rescue us. Because we were from Adam's line. Adam in the garden sinned against God and all of us are from him. And so when we're born into this world, we are born at enmity with God. We are born with a disposition to not to want to live for the king, but to live against the king. But that's not where the story ends, is it? Romans 5.10, the glorious news of the gospel says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His own Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. This is the good news of the gospel. That we were enemies of God. That we had sinned against this God. That we were enemies of the King. King of the universe. The one who created us. And yet while we were enemies. While we were on our face before this God. Waiting for the judgment to come down. The King on His throne looks on us and says. Child, do not fear. Unexpected kindness. Unexpected grace. Brothers and sisters, this should fill our hearts with gratitude. Thanksgiving for us is not a holiday. It's a way of life. Thanksgiving does not end for us. It's a way of life. Because each day we wake up to new mercies. Each day we wake up with the awareness that I am receiving this day what I don't deserve. That instead of the king's fist, instead of the king's judgment, instead of the death that I deserve, what I'm receiving is due not fear. That is what we're hearing. G.K. Chesterton, I love how he defines gratitude. He says that thankfulness is the highest form of praise and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Doubled by wonder. There's just this awareness that in light of what I deserve and where I am today, that I should be both thankful, that I should be happy, and that most of all, I should be in wonder. 
I should be in wonder at what God has done for me. It's amazing grace. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then, then what I would want to say to you is that you're still an enemy of God. And I believe you're here because I think the Lord, what He wants to offer you is that there's a way to be reconciled to Him. That there's a way to go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. And later on, we're about to learn about how to become a son or daughter of God. That's, what, that's, that's the grace we're going to hear about in a minute. We're just getting started. God's grace is amazing. He offers it to you freely. He says, come to me. He says, come to me. Look to my son. Trust in him through faith and I will make you my friend. How does this work? How does this function? Point number two. Like Mephibosheth, we are loved for another's sake. Franklin Roosevelt made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932 advocating restraint in government spending. Four years later, he wanted to speak there in favor of government spending. He asked one of his advisors how he could manage, manage such an about-face. The counsel was straightforward. Deny you made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932. Easy enough, right? There you go. Just say you never did it. Say you never did it. Don't worry about it. The reason I tell you about that is that David finds himself in a position where he could respond this way. So, so, in, in, so David, he begins this whole story, this whole account by saying, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Not, not for Saul's sake, not, not for that person's sake, but for someone's specific sake, for Jonathan's sake. Now, what, what is that about? What is he talking about? Well, David and Jonathan were friends. They loved each other deeply. And they committed, they made promises to one another. They, they made covenants. They said they made promises before God to one another that would affect and outlast just their friendship. We see this in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Forever. So when this, when this was initially made, 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan's alive. Who's on the throne? Saul's on the throne. Who's running and scared? David is about to run and Saul's about to chase him. Fifteen years have passed. Who's on the throne? David's on the throne. Who's running? Who's dead? Jonathan and Saul have died. Jonathan's son and his offspring are running. They're hiding. And so now in this moment, David has an option. He can either fulfill the covenant and the promise that he made to Jonathan, or he can just act like it never happened. He could be like every other king. Hey, this is just what kings do. Yeah, I talked to Jonathan about that 15 years ago, but 
It's just a promise. I mean, things change. Relationships change. God's made a promise to me. His line is through mine, so I'm just going to go with this now. He could have easily done that. He could have done that. But here's the thing. The covenant mattered to David. He took it seriously. I believe that he took it seriously because he was a man after God's own heart. And God takes his covenants seriously. When God says that he's going to do something, he does it. So, Mephibosheth can receive the grace that he doesn't deserve because David is being faithful to the promise he made to Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. We live in a day and age where covenants and these promises and, uh, that we make to one another, they, just, they, they don't have as much value, right? We, we just, promises are made and promises are broken. It's just the fact of life. I would say that some of the most stunning and beautiful um, and clear covenants we make to one another is through the covenant of marriage. But yet even in our day, this covenant, this covenant promise that, that a man and a woman make to each other has even lost value. But when you see a marriage that, that, is, that is different from when that marriage began and is in a hard spot, but yet this, this, this husband and wife is working hard to love one another and to hold to those promises, it is a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness to his people. I love the story of B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield was a well-respected theologian. He was a professor at Old Princeton in the late 19th and early 20th century. Many know of his excellent theology, but few know about his marriage. He married his wife, Annie, and they went to Germany on a honeymoon and also for B.B. Warfield to study. They were on a tour in this mountain range. A thunderstorm came. It struck. It was intense. It was so intense that Annie, B.B. Warfield's wife, was forever affected by it. This was right after they got married. She was basically an invalid. She could not function. B.B. Warfield would only spend no more than two hours away from his wife a day. He would do his seminary duties, and then he would come back home, and he would care for his wife. He did this for 39 years. When you hear that story, when I read that story, here's what what was clear. Here's what mattered. What B.B. Warfield said. He did not say, do you promise to love your wife in this moment? He said, will you promise? In the future, are you going to love your wife? Are you going to care for your wife? You stand here before God and these people. Are you going to do it? And when B.B. Warfield said, I do, he meant it. He meant it. Because he knew that a covenant was not just a piece of paper. It was a promise. It was a promise that he made before God. It was a promise that he made before people. It was a promise mostly that he made to his wife. And so for 39 years, he was faithful to that. And here's what's so 
amazing about covenants. Here's what's so um, important. Del Ralph Davis says, the promise made in the past directs loyalty in the present. So the promises we make in the past, they direct, they inform, they shape our loyalty in the present. So I would encourage all of us who are married, I would encourage you, if you've not in a while, considered the vows that you have made to your spouse. What did you promise? If you are not married, is this your vision for marriage? Our world has a very different picture of marriage. This is a biblical picture based on a covenant relationship and promise. This idea of covenant relationship, it drives the whole Bible. David's love toward Mephibosheth was the direct result of the covenant he made with Jonathan many years ago. So now Mephibosheth is a beneficiary of that covenant. He comes, he falls on his face before this king, and the king says, do not fear. Why? Why shouldn't I fear? Because I promised, I made a promise to your father that I would show kindness to his offspring forever. That I would show kindness to you for the sake of him. That I would extend a loving invitation that I would make that I would lift you up and say, do not fear because of a promise I made with him. Brothers and sisters, this is just another reminder for us that our standing before God is based on an amazing covenant. It's based on a relationship that we're not a part of. That we have no say in. A promise that was made before the ages began between a father and a son. The father was God and his son was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has become a mediator between sinful man and his father who is in heaven. We should not be able to to have this relationship with God. But for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But God, but God, we all deserve to to fall before the face of God. We don't deserve to be in the presence of God, but God, but God. When we sing of God's grace, when we talk about salvation by grace, this is what we're talking about. And it's found in 2 Samuel 9. There's echoes in the Old Testament of what God is doing. This just should solidify that God's plan, His promise, what He was doing, is in the whole Bible. That even when you read about someone like Mephibosheth, that when you read this story, there's a greater story going on. There's something more that's going on. I love that Mephibosheth was brought into the king's house. Those with physical disabilities at that time were counted as nothing. But yet, he was brought to the king's table. When 
what is Mephibosheth's response? Verse 8, he says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Verse 8. Leads to point 3. Like Mephibosheth, grace brings dead dogs to the king's table. Like Mephibosheth, grace brings dead dogs to the king's table. Dogs were not seen during this time as favorable things. They were not loved. They were considered scavengers. They were annoyances. So, so, Dave, so Mephibosheth, when he says that he's a dead dog, what he's saying is that I'm not only a dog, I'm worse than a dog. I'm a dead dog. <laughs> he's being self-deprecating. Actually, what he sees is that he has a right view of who he is. I think that's important to see. Mephibosheth is keenly aware. He's keenly aware of who he is. A lot, of, a lot of our wrestlings with who God is and who we are is that we have a false view of who God is and who we are. And we need to do what John Calvin, when he says is that here's the source of, here's the way to true wisdom. We need to see who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be, and then in light of who God is, we need to see who we are. And when we come to face those two realities, I think that we'll join our voices with Mephibosheth and have no problem in calling ourselves dead dogs. What I love about the story of Mephibosheth is that David doesn't just simply say, I'm going to show you kindness. What David tells Mephibosheth is that I'm going to let you sit at my table. I'm going to let you sit with me. To sit at the king's table is, a, is the highest honor. To sit at the king's table, to have fellowship with the king, means that, that you are now going to benefit from being in fellowship with the king. So let's just take a second and just imagine with me the scene. Imagine the first time Mephibosheth went to David's table. Imagine the first time he, walked, he was carried into those doors. And imagine there would be seats around this table and they would be reserved for David's children. You would have Amnon, David's eldest son, Tamar, who was believed to be extraordinarily beautiful. There's Absalom. Absalom, it was said that from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, there was no blemish. You'd then have Joab, a nephew of David's, the captain of the army. So he's a soldier. He's a man's man. Then you have Solomon, the future king. But then there's one seat left. And who's in that seat? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. He's carried. Can't even walk. He's carried to the seat. And he's seated in the seat. And his seat is pushed up to this table. And he's looking around. He did this daily. Every day he would eat with the king's children and with the king. And just, I just imagine Mephibosheth Imagine on his, his ride, his first encounter with David, what he was thinking. What's going to happen to me? How is the king going to treat me? How, what could possibly happen to a dead dog such as I? And now he's sitting at the king's table. He's eating of the king's food. He's being treated as one of the king's sons. 
He's thinking, I do not deserve to be here. I don't have any bargaining chips. The king's love stoops to to the lowest of low to me. There's this wonderful song called How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. And, and, And I love the first verse where it says, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feet, the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Lord, why was I a guest? I just can't imagine, I just imagine that Mephibosheth each day would walk in, sit at that table and just think, Lord, why am I a guest at this table? Why, why do I have a seat? Why do I deserve to be here? Friends, this is our story. We sit at the king's table. And the focus, the focus of why we're sitting there is not going to be on our worthiness, but it's going to be the worth of the king. It's going to be on the love of the king. It's going to be on the amazing grace of the king. And in some ways, this can be too good to be true. We can think, is that really how it works? We can be tempted to think, I... I mean, I have to bring something to the table, right? I mean, as long as I don't sin, as long as I don't commit a sin, at least for like a week, as long as I don't struggle with this particular besetting sin, then I'll have a seat at the table. Then God will be happy with me. Then I'll hear those words, do not fear. And I just just want to say to you, that's not true. I just want to say to you, that we are like Mephibosheth. We are dead dogs. The dead dog, it can't do anything. Can it? Like Mephibosheth, he had to be carried to the king's table. We have to be carried to the king's table. Sinclair Ferguson, he says, the greatest enemy of rejoicing in grace is the thought that God will be gracious because of something he sees in me. I completely agree with Bill during his prayer. I think the Lord wants to restore the joy of our salvation this morning. I think the Lord wants to fill our hearts with thankfulness. I think the the Lord wants to fill our hearts with wonder at what He has done. I think the Lord wants to remind us. He wants us to rest assured. Maybe some of us this morning aren't resting assured in the promise that God is going to lavish us with His grace. You could have walked in this morning with this low-grade guilt. And what God wants to do is say, Child... My grace is for you. It's real. It's enough. And I give it freely. Come and enjoy. Come and drink. This is the greatest mystery of the gospel. That those who sin every day should have peace with God all their days. Isn't that amazing? Notice that the status for Mephibosheth has changed. Not only will he dine at the king's table, but he's one of the king's sons. Too few know what it is to receive forgiveness by bowing before God's sovereign love and drinking from the infinite ocean of grace. The Lord in this text has given us an ocean of grace. And what he's asking is to say, come on in and take a swim. Here's a way for you. Do not fear. Here's a way for you. Come sit at my table. Here's a way for you. You'll sit at my table for all your, all your days. Here's a way for you. I'm going to treat you as a son. 
And that's what eternity is going to be. It's going to be wave after wave after wave of experiencing the endless, the infinite, the incredible amount of God's grace. Grace leaves us asking, Lord, why am I a guest? But the Lord this morning wants us to rest assured in God's promise to lavish you with His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this text. I thank You for the promise that where our sin abounds, Your grace abounds all the more. That it is solely in Your Son that there is safety. It is only in Your Son where we can experience fellowship with God. Heavenly Father, I I thank You for this wonderful promise that we are like Mephibosheth. that we eat at Your table. You've invited us to come. Heavenly Father, restore the joy of our salvation this morning, I pray. And help us now as we return to singing, to sing. You have given us a new song to sing. I pray that this week, that we would be filled with the joy of our salvation. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.